Well, my family and I enjoyed a great uh, Thanksgiving, uh, and it was super to think about things that we were thankful for, uh, and I have well and truly turned the corner towards Christmas. So that has already, that shift has already happened um, in my mind. I know if you've been to stores, they've already made that shift like four months ago. Um, But uh, in my family, we have rules about these kind of things. Uh, And in my family, there's no such thing as playing Christmas songs uh, before Thanksgiving. And there's certainly no decorating or doing anything else before Thanksgiving. Um, But when Thanksgiving is over... It's fair game, and it's, and it's game on. Uh, we had a great time uh, with the Oscoms for our Thanksgiving, uh, and on the drive home, that's when the official Christmas uh, season has begun, turn Christmas music on on the car on the drive home from Thanksgiving meal, and, uh, and so we had Christmas music going. And, and uh, since that Thanksgiving meal, we've um, decorated the house and hung some lights on the house and all of those um, fun kind of things. Uh, and as I was thinking about uh, Christmas time, we enjoy all of, the, all of that fun um, of Christmas. But obviously, the most important thing to us uh, is remembering the arrival of our Christ. Uh, and so in my opportunity to preach this morning, um, I wanted us to um, even now um, spend some time getting our hearts and our minds ready um, for the arrival of Christ, for, for the birth of Christ as we come to another Christmas season. And I think the best place for us to go when we think about Um, the coming of Christ is the Old Testament, because the story of Christ's coming obviously doesn't start in Matthew or start in Luke. The story of Christ's coming goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, um, when he was originally promised uh, there in Genesis chapter number three. Uh, And and nowadays, the idea of like origin stories are, they're kind of all the rage, like in movies and stuff like that. There's all these movies about the origin of so-and-so superhero or of Star Wars this, and, and where did it all get started? What we're going to get to do this morning in the book of Ruth uh, is go to one of the most exciting origin stories ever. Um, We're going to go to a story that is kind of equal parts uh, romance and equal parts hero. Uh, We're going to come to a story that's placed in our Bibles and it's designed to point us not to who it's named for Ruth, uh, not to the other characters in Ruth, but it's designed to draw your attention to how God is working out his plan to redeem his people which is ultimately going to be seen in the coming of Jesus Christ and then his perfect life and his sacrificial death and then his resurrection. And so the book of Ruth is going to prepare our hearts to see where, where did all of this come about? Where did, where did the coming of Christ, um, what, what happened? And Ruth is another one of those pieces of the puzzle that get us to the coming of Christ and get us to the gospel. And so like a divine stage play or like a divine story, um, Ruth is going to show us what God thinks about loyal love. He's going to show us what he thinks about faithfulness. And he's going to show us the way that he is faithful to redeem his people. He's going to show us what faithfulness looks like. And he's going to remind us how he gives faithfulness to his people. Uh, The setting of the story is going to be two different countries, Moab and then a city called Bethlehem. And there's going to be three main characters in our story, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And we're going to go from rock bottom in chapter number one of Ruth until we get all the way to a thrilling conclusion in chapter number four. And all along the way, God's going to be teaching us today about loyal love. And so that's our main idea for this morning. God shows loyal love to his people. Let's look in Ruth chapter number one, beginning in verse number one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so begins the story in the book of Ruth about a God, a God who will show faithful love and a God who values faithful love. What we're going to see as we work through the book is really um, alternating. In chapter 1, we're going to see Ruth's faithfulness on display because we're going to see in chapter 1 that loyal love is sacrificial. When we get to chapter 2, the focus will switch to God's faithfulness. And we'll see that loyal love protects and provides. We get to chapter 3, and we're going to go back to Ruth, uh, and we're going to see that loyal love is selfless. And when we finish in chapter 4, we're going to see God's faithfulness on display. We're going to see that loyal love or faithfulness, it blesses graciously. So those are our four points, these four chapters for us this morning. The first one, we're going to see Ruth's faithfulness, and we're going to see that loyal love is sacrificial. Loyal love is sacrificial. It starts out that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And this is one of those times when understanding the time period of a book is so important for us getting the point of the book. In the days when the judges ruled, there is a very close connection between the book of Ruth and the time period of Judges. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, uh, you know that the book of Judges is full of people who are doing what was right in their own eyes. In fact, that's kind of the theme of the book of Judges. There was no king of Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The time period of the book of Judges was a time really of chaos um, and, and disorder for the nation of Israel. It was a time when there was rampant sin and unfaithfulness to God. Uh, and, and in the book of Judges, there is a very discernible pattern. And, and the pattern is um, that, that the nation of Israel would sin. And so because of their sin, God would punish them. He would punish them usually in the form of another nation who would come and oppress them, who would take their food and, and, and take their stuff and force them into some kind of slavery. And then God's people would cry out to him for deliverance, and God would send a judge who would rescue them. Uh, and God's people would, um, would turn away from their sin, and the judge would rescue them, and that would last for pretty much however long the judge lived. And as soon as that judge died, God's people would go right back, and they would sin again. And so that sin would be followed by punishment, and that punishment would be followed by crying out for help. God would send a helper, they'd be rescued, and then that would be followed by sin. And that cycle just happens again and again and again. Sin, punishment, um, crying out for help, deliverance, sin, punishment. And it just goes again and again and again. So the time of Judges was a time of chaos and immorality all throughout um, Israel. And the book of Ruth is in those days. In fact, the, the book of Ruth is so closely connected uh, to the book of Judges uh, that it was once considered part of Judges. Uh, if you look in, the, in some of the Hebrew uh, scriptures, they actually had Ruth and Judges all as one book. 
All right? They combined some other books that we have separate today, like Jeremiah and Lamentations. But the point is uh, that there was this close, close connection between Ruth and Judges. So when you hear Ruth, your mind ought to be going, what do I know about the book of Judges? And these things, these things are inseparably linked, um, Ruth and, and Judges. All right? There's also some thematic connections, um, even though we have these books uh, separate. Um, in, in the end of Judges, there are two really amazing stories about people from Bethlehem. And we get to the, the book of Ruth, and we now have a third story about somebody from Bethlehem. Uh, the other two stories in the book of Judges um, are really, um, they're, they're crazy stories, like a lot of stories in the book of Judges. Judges 18.2, um, there's a Levite that comes from Bethlehem. He ends up becoming a personal priest to a guy named Micah who creates an idol, and he actually creates his own idol worship. That's, that was the state of Israel in the time of the Judges. They were actually creating their own idols. This guy had his own personal priest. All right, um, Judges 19 uh, tells an even crazier story about a guy from, from Bethlehem. Uh, and, and in this story, um, he has a concubine who, um, it's, it's a horrible story, really. It's a, it's a nasty story. But um, so people come, um, and, and they mistreat his concubine all night, um, and, and they end up killing her. And when he comes out in the morning, he finds her on the doorstep, and she's dead. And he's so upset, and this is how crazy the time, I'm trying to get you into, this is what Judges is like, Right? It's so crazy at this time that he takes a knife and he cuts his concubine into 12 different pieces and he sends pieces of her to all the tribes of Israel as a message of this is, the, this is what state we are in. This is the kind of horrible things that are happening. It, it's, it was uh, a, a bizarre, crazy story. But uh, the story shows us how great the immorality was at this time. This is, this is happening, the book of Ruth is happening in those days when that kind of stuff is going on. And if you're paying attention in the book of Judges, uh, when you get to the end and people are, are all doing what's right in their, in their own eyes and there's been all this sin and punishment and then repentance and deliverance, you read a story like what happened to this guy's concubine and, and this bizarre, um, both, both her, her killing and, and then this weird message that's sent, you kind of get to the end and you think, how low can a nation go? Uh, and how much, how much more patience does God possibly have? At, at what point does God's patience run out for a people that live in this sort of immorality? And the book of Ruth comes to us as an answer to that question. The question we are wondering when we get to the, when we get to the end of Judges is, how long will God be faithful? And the book of Ruth is going to come along to say that God's faithfulness is greater than you can possibly imagine. God is going to be faithful to his people, and he's going to do even more than that. He's going to be faithful to people who are outside of the nation of Israel. Ruth answers the question of God's faithfulness, and it beautifully shows us God's loyal love to his people. Because in Judges, Israel is going to forsake the true God to turn to idols. In Ruth, we're going to have a pagan woman turn from idols, and she's going to turn to God. So, This is the days of Ruth. It's the days of the judges. And while the judges were ruling, it says there was a famine in the land. We assume that this famine was probably caused because of one of the judgments that had fallen on Israel because there wasn't a famine in Moab, uh, which is only 50 miles away. So it probably wasn't caused by lack of rain or some kind of geographical famine. Uh, It was probably because nations were coming and taking all of Israel's food. So in these days, there's a famine in the land. It says, a man of Bethlehem and Judah, which is going to get repeated twice. So here comes Bethlehem into the story. Um, A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
All right, uh, sojourning in our Old Testaments most often works out really, really badly, right? So when people sojourn, when they leave Israel to go to another nation, it almost always works out poorly, uh, and that's going to happen again. Um, when Abraham leaves to go to Egypt, bad things happen, right? Um, when this man leaves, he leaves Israel, and it says he's going to sojourn. He's going to live in the country of Moab. Um, Moab uh, were chronic enemies of Israel. This was a pagan nation uh, that worshipped a god named Chemosh. They, had, they did all kinds of evil and wicked uh, things for that god, including child sacrifice. This is a pagan, immoral evil nation. And that's where this guy's going with his wife and his two sons. He's dragging his entire family into a sinful and idolatrous society. And no doubt he's excusing the spiritual danger by saying, but we just need food. There's a physical need. Therefore, we're going to excuse away all of the spiritual dangers. And we're going to say, because there's something that we want, which is more food, we're going there. All right. We, we find out uh, that the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. Uh, Elimelech means my God is king, which is ironic because he's leaving God's country um, of Israel. But uh, Naomi means pleasant. Uh, and then real nice parents these two are. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, which means puny and sickly. Right? So thanks a lot, mom and dad. Um, thanks for calling me puny. And the other one gets to be called sickly. Um, it might have been because they were born during the famine. And so they actually were, uh, I mean, Jewish names often were describing uh, the character of their kids, right? So Jacob is the deceiver. He's the heel grabber. Um, they will call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin. Names mean something. In this case, these boys' names mean puny and, and sickly, right? Um, and so again, it repeats, they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. Apparently, the writer of Ruth really wants us to remember that they're from Bethlehem, right? It's important in our story, and it's important in the story of God redeeming his people, um, Bethlehem. Uh, so it says they went into the country of Moab, but then what happens? They remain there. You, you see that? Instead of just sojourning there, they go there and they stay. Uh, they like it there, uh, despite the fact that, that they are now cut off um, from the one true place to worship God, right? Right? If you're a Jewish person, there's only one place you can worship God, and, and it's, at, it's at the temple. You, you can't offer sacrifices anywhere else. There's no such thing as, as private sacrifices, right? You have to go to the temple to offer your sacrifices. Uh, God's, God's nation of Israel is the place for his chosen people to be, and, and yet Elimelech has chosen to cut himself off from that. He can't sacrifice to God to, to Moab. He can't visit the temple. He can't keep all of his Jewish covenantal agreements. He can't follow the diet that he's supposed to follow. Um, Elimelech has effectively cut off his relationship to God. So when you read that they remain there, don't just think, oh, they moved somewhere because it was more convenient. Right? For us, it's no big, to move 50 miles from, from where you're living right now, you know, it might change some things, but it's no big deal, right? Um, this is a major deal in the book of Ruth. To leave Israel is to leave God's place of blessing. It is to leave relationship with God. This is not just he moved somewhere for a job transfer or something else. He moved and he is actually leaving a relationship with God behind. He's cutting himself off and he's cutting his family off from from the kind of relationship that God wanted with his people, a covenant relationship. He is being unfaithful. Essentially, he's walking out on God, and now he's choosing to stay there. What happens is, despite all of this um, willingness to leave God's place of blessing and to leave God's nation in order to, uh, to provide for himself, in verse 3, Elimelech still dies. Right? He goes to Moab trying to continue his life, but what happens is 
He ends his life there. So Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies, and she's left with her two sons. And now Naomi is left to raise these two boys in a pagan society without a husband. Well, uh, these two boys uh, become old enough to marry, and they take Moabite wives. Um, No big surprise, right? Because they've abandoned Israel, and now they're going to take foreign wives. They're going to take pagan wives to be their wives because they've, they've started to assimilate into this evil idolatrous culture, including their marriage, right? So these boys are just following in the footsteps of daddy, right? Daddy left Israel, and he didn't care about covenant promises with God, and so now they're not going to care about covenant promises with God, and they're going to marry outside the Jewish nation. Again, let's remind ourselves, this is, this is not like um, an interracial marriage, um, which there is absolutely no problem with, right? Uh, th- this is actually marrying somebody who is outside of God's chosen people. Th- this, is, this is not just marrying somebody from a different country than you're from. This is not just marrying somebody from a different background than you're from. These boys are marrying women who are outside of God's covenant promises, right? They're, they're pagan. They're foreign. And so they take these wives. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they live there for about 10 years and then both Malon and Chilion die. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We're only five verses into the book of Ruth, uh, and, and we are never going to hear about Elimelech uh, again. He's done. It's over. Right? Uh, and, and these boys, what they have served to do is introduce us to Orpah and Ruth, and now they're done. Right? They're dead, and they're off the scene. What's going to happen? Well, in verse number 6, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. That return is going to show up 12 times in the rest of the chapter. It's an important word. She's going to go back from the country of Moab. Why would she decide to return? Well, she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Right? That word visited is not just like the people that came to your house for Thanksgiving to visit you. That word visited is like to, to show up in order to either bless or to judge, one, one or the other. But, but that word visited uh, is a really loaded theological word. It has to do with God's sovereign personal dealing and human affairs. When God visits somebody, he visits them in, in order to bless them or in order to punish them. In this case, he has come back to visit his people and he's given them food. So what we assume that means is that cycle of punishment has, has now ended and God has provided a judge, he's rescued them, and now God has sovereignly given his people food. And when Naomi hears that, she wants to return. So verse number seven says, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return, there's that word again, to the land of Judah. All right. Now Naomi is a really complicated character in this story and she's kind of hard to get a beat on. Um, because apparently she had an amazing relationship with her daughters-in-law, right? I don't know if they had mother-in-law jokes back then, um, but mother-in-law jokes are, are, you know, they're just the stereotypical joke, right? Um, but, but Naomi apparently loved her daughters-in-law, and they loved her so much so that they're actually going back together. They're leaving Moab to return uh, to Bethlehem. And so she sets out with them, and they're all on the way. But as they're walking, Naomi said to her two daughters, her two daughters-in-law, this is verse number eight, go return each of you to her mother's house. Now there's a different return. Now she says, we're on the way back to Israel, but now I want you to turn around and go back to your mother's house. And then she wishes this blessing on them, which is really ironic when you consider what she's saying. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. There's that word for faithfulness. And, and you've heard me say loyal love. That's, that's the same idea, loyal love, faithfulness, dealing kindly. 
right? May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Apparently, these girls have been faithful to their husbands, and there really had been a good relationship between um, the, the two puny and weakly, uh, sickly boys, uh, as well as Naomi, her mother-in-law. And she wishes them a blessing. May the Lord be faithful to you. And then she adds this further blessing, verse number nine. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, that you go find a husband back in Moab, right? She's wishing God's blessing, which you think is good. But think about what Naomi is actually saying. She's saying, go back to Moab and go back to, go, go find a pagan husband. Go, go find someone who doesn't believe in God, who worships a child sacrificing God. Go back and, and I hope God blesses you there. Right? Naomi is just, she's, she is, she's got parts of right thinking about God and parts that are just totally off base, which is also um, representative of what the, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel was like throughout the book of Judges, right? So on one hand, she says, the Lord, may the Lord be faithful because she knows that God is faithful, but she's wishing that for these girls to go back into a pagan environment, all right? It says, she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they said to her, no, we're going to return with you to your people. Naomi basically explains to them that there's no reason that they should come back to Israel with her. She says, there's no hope for you for having a husband. Um, They had a tradition, which sounds weird to us now, um, but in in Jewish uh, tradition, if you had had a marriage where the husband died and there hadn't been any children, then the brother would then be responsible to marry that person and raise up children for the sake of his brother, right? Which frankly, just kind of creeps me out a little bit, and I'm really glad that we don't live in this day and age, right? I'm also glad that my married brother has already had kids, so I would be out of this, right? But um, it's kind of a bizarre thing to us in in our day to look at this and be like, that'd be really weird if I had to marry my brother's wife if she didn't have kids so that she would have kids. Um, But Naomi says, look, I I don't have any more sons. If, If I got married right now and I got pregnant tonight, you still have to wait for them to grow up Essentially, there's no hope of you finding a husband um, from, from my family. And she just says, just turn back. Just, just forget it. I, I, there's, there's no hope. She says, my daughters, in verse 13, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Isn't it interesting to see Naomi's perspective? She says, God's hand is against me. Right? Who's the one that chose to leave Israel in the first place? Right? Um, who's the one that abandoned God's place of blessing? Who's the one that walked out on covenant with God? Um, It was Naomi and her husband. And yet she says, God's hand has gone out against me. And it's bitter, she says, for your sake. She really does care about these girls that that now they have been brought into God's hand being against her. They lift up their voices and they cry again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, right? Uh, Orpah's kiss is a goodbye kiss, right? So she kisses and she leaves. But it says that Ruth clings to her. Look at, this is amazing. Look in verse number 15. Maybe you think I've been a little too hard on, on Naomi. But look what she says to Ruth in verse 15. Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her what? To her gods. Return, there's that word return, after your sister-in-law. She's telling Ruth to go back to her people and tell Ruth to go back to her to her gods. She's saying, Ruth, do the same thing that Orpah did. Go back to your people and go back to your gods, right? We are not being too hard on Naomi to say that she is, at, at best, severely confused about how she ought to relate to God. She's telling Ruth 
Go back and worship your false gods. Instead of Naomi being the one saying, God is great and God is worth being praised and worshiped and we should be faithful to him, instead she's the one saying, abandon God and go, go worship other gods. Naomi is being unfaithful to God. And yet what we're going to see amazingly enough uh, is that Ruth is actually going to show a faithfulness to God that Naomi doesn't even have. As Naomi has been walking out on God, Ruth has been walking to him. Because look at what Ruth says. And she says this statement that maybe you've heard like in a wedding um, or, or, or you've heard this before. Because it's this amazing statement of faithful love. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and excuse me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You want to know what faithfulness looks like? Loyal love looks like? This is what it looks like. It looks like somebody who is willing to be selfless. And that's what loyal love, or sacrificial. Loyal love is sacrificial because Ruth says, wherever you go, I'm going with you. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to sacrifice my people, my family, I'm going to sacrifice them to be with your family, with your people. And your God is now going to be my God. Ruth was saying goodbye to all of her false gods. And she was saying, I will follow the one true God. That's sacrifice. That's saying, I will die to what is old and I will will now go where you go and do what you do. She says, where you die, I'm going to die and there I'm going to be buried. Right? And that's probably why you've heard this. Um, maybe, like I said, you've heard it in a wedding, in, in wedding vows or things like that, because it's an amazing statement of faithfulness. In this case, it's Ruth to, to Naomi. But we naturally love and appreciate the concept of loyal love. Right? There's, there's something even in stories and, and the people around us that we appreciate loyal love. And on the other side, um, being a traitor is something that really bothers us. Right? Have, have you noticed that? Um, there's not a whole lot of Benedict Arnolds uh, running around in America these days, right? Because still to this day, the name of a traitor is not something that we love, right? Um, I don't know a whole lot of Judases. I, I've never really uh, met a lot of people named Judas. Um, maybe if you were uh, like Puny and Weekly's parents, you might call your kid Judas if you didn't care, right? But the name Judas doesn't have this amazing ring to it because he's a traitor, right? And, and we don't appreciate traitors, what we appreciate is loyalty. What, what we appreciate is faithfulness. And that's natural within us. And we respond to faithfulness of any kind. And what, what we see here is that, is that really Ruth is presenting the kind of faithfulness that we all love and value. Because she's saying, no matter what it takes, I'm with you. And we love stories like that. Um, we love stories like the story about Sally and Jarrett. I'm sure everyone knows Sally Ann Jarrett, right? Um, Sally Ann Jarrett um, was a wonderful female. Uh, she happened to be a dog. Uh, and Sally, uh, Sally Ann Jarrett was a dog that belonged to the 11th Pennsylvania Infantry. If you go to Gettysburg today, uh, you can find a statue uh, for the 11th Pennsylvania Infantry. And at the bottom of that statue, uh, there is uh, a a sculpture of Sally Ann Jarrett, a dog. She's one of only two dogs in all of the statues at Gettysburg. She's one of only two dogs there, right? Why is she immortalized in bronze? And you can still go see her today. Because during the Battle of Gettysburg, she stayed with that regiment uh, and, and she, she stayed with the dead and with the wounded for four days. She just lay there with them. 
And eventually, some of the regiment came back, and they, and they found her. And she had found, um, she had found where the regiment had fallen, and she had just laid with them for those four days. They picked her up, and they kept her throughout the rest of the war. And so she got put on this statue to, to remember her, because people care about faithfulness. All right? I'm just saying, it's an example of people care about faithfulness. We appreciate faithfulness, whether it's from an animal um, or not. We love faithfulness. We, 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 we love the concept. And that's because we're built in the image of God. Right? And God has hardwired into us a love for faithfulness. And what we see in Ruth is, is a faithfulness that is sacrificial. We get to uh, the end of the chapter, and the two of them go on until they get to Bethlehem. And when they come to Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred because of them. That's a really neat word um, that has the idea of like humming. So the whole town is, is buzzing with, with noise because they're there. And it says, the, woman's, the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. All right, she's back at it again. This is, this is Naomi's theology. God has been hard on me. God has been bitter um, with me. She says, I went away full. I had a husband and two sons, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She says, I am bitter now because of what has happened to me. So don't call me pleasant, just call me bitter. So Naomi returns and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, they return from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You get to the end of chapter one and you're starting to wonder, is this going to be just another one of those stories like the end of Judges about some disaster from Bethlehem? Because right? all the other stories in Judges that involve someone from Bethlehem ended up in complete disaster. And now we get to the end of chapter number one, and we're kind of at the rock bottom of this is looking really, really bad, right? Uh, Yet again, someone from Bethlehem has chosen sin, and um, nasty things have happened in their lives, and we're we're kind of at rock bottom. Of course, you know that there are three more chapters to go. Um, But think about being in Ruth chapter one, and think think about Naomi in this case, right? Naomi doesn't know what's about to happen in her life. All she knows is, I've lost my husband, I've lost my sons, um, my, my daughters-in-law have no children, I've lost another daughter-in-law, I'm empty, I have nothing left. As a widow, she has, she has almost no recourse. She, she, she doesn't know where her food is going to come from. She doesn't have any um, source of income. She's completely destitute, right? And, and when we read our Old Testaments, it's important for us to care about these Old Testament characters. It's important for you to understand their situation uh, because that's how we're going to get to the meaning of the book of Ruth. What's going to happen to this broken woman? Is this just another sad story? What could possibly reverse her brokenness? Because if you can enter into the, into the experience of, of what Naomi has gone through, then you will taste how sweet it is that God is going to be faithful to her. God is going to provide redemption for Naomi. In chapter 1, she's broken. But good news, there's chapters 2 and 3 and 4 that are going to showcase how faithful God is. Because that's what the book of Ruth is all about. God showing faithful love. Chapter 1, we saw um, faithful love is sacrificial in the form of Ruth. In chapter 2, we're going to see that now God is going to show some faithfulness. And he's going to show some loyal love. And he's going to protect and he's going to provide for Ruth and for Naomi. Because Naomi had a relative. um, A relative of her husband. And he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And his name was Boaz. We're now introduced to the third main character in the book of Ruth, this man named Boaz. Uh, and Ruth the Moabite tells Naomi, let me go and let me glean among the fields. 
uh, it was a common practice back then. They, they go and pick up the leftover pieces of grain. In this case, it's, it's barley harvest. There's also going to be wheat harvest. But they're allowed to get the pieces that are left behind, right? Um, they wouldn't have gotten a lot, but enough that they can maybe scrape by and get enough food to live. And so uh, Naomi says that Ruth can go. She goes, uh, and, and it says that she, and I do think this is um, Holy Spirit intended irony. Uh, it's kind of tongue in cheek. It says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It's like, uh, as it so happened, she happened to end up in a field that happened to belong to a guy who happened to be family, who just so happened to be a worthy man. He was a reliable man. He was a faithful man. He was a wealthy man. He was a man, that's the same word for like David's mighty men of valor, that was Boaz. Oh, she just happened to end up there. Right? You can almost hear the like, tongue-in-cheek, like, well, that kind of worked out well, thankfully. Uh, it just so happened that she ended up there. Right? And so um, God is obviously sovereign at work, even um, behind the scenes of, of where Ruth ends up to glean. Uh, and so um, she gets there, and she's working. Uh, and we find out that she, she got there in verse number 7 early in the morning, and she'd been working all day except for a short little rest. Because Boaz shows up on the scene, and he greets, his, he greets his workers. He says, the Lord be with you, and they say, be with you. And the first thing he says is, who's that? All right? He, he walks up to his field. He's checking out, how's my harvest going? And he thinks he's coming to just check out his harvest. But what he starts checking out is, wait a second, uh, who's, that, who's that girl I see over there? Right? Uh, he says, who, who's that? Uh, and, and whose young woman is this? And the servants say, well, she's the Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. Everyone knows the story about Ruth and, Ruth and Naomi, right? I told you the whole town was buzzing. Um, Bethlehem, we're not talking big town, right? We're not talking like Fresno, all right? Uh, we're not talking the size of Kingsburg. We're talking little tiny town, right? The town that I grew up in, we had one stoplight right? Um, my graduating class had a little over 100 people in it. Everybody knows everybody, and I think that's true probably about Kingsburg too, right? But in an even smaller town, everybody knows everybody else's business, and everybody knows about the story of Ruth and Naomi. And, and so all they have to say is, oh, that's that girl. That's the, that's the Moabite girl. She, she's the one. And, and, and she said, let me glean, and she's been working hard. And so Boaz goes to Ruth, and he says, um, don't go glean in any other field or leave this one, but stay close to my young women. Uh, and Boaz blesses Ruth, and he says, I've charged my young men not to touch you. When you're thirsty, you can go get a drink anytime you want. And Ruth bows down in front of Boaz, and she says, why would you be showing me this favor? Why would you be kind to me? Ruth's going, this is more kindness than has been shown to me. Why? And look at Boaz's answer. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, verse number 11 of chapter 2, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz says, the reason you're getting favor and kindness right now is because God blesses faithfulness. Because God can repay you. Because God will reward you. You see, God gives faithfulness. God gives this kind of loyal love. And he's going to give it to Ruth. He's going to protect and provide for her. And he's going to do it by getting her to Boaz's field. And then he's going to cause Boaz to want to care about her. And so Boaz blesses her and says, the Lord repay you. On top of that, Boaz starts giving her all these other special things, right? Um, I still remember uh, when... Uh, 
friend, Kathy, started to understand that my interest was a little more in her and not just in our other group of friends. We had this big group of friends, and eventually it started to dawn on some other people. It started dawning on other people before her for some reason, but uh, it started to dawn on other people that like, you know what, he's starting to show a little more interest in one of us um, and not on others. And I remember there was one, I worked landscaping um, when, when I was in college, uh, and uh, so I happened to be working around some rose bushes, and I happened to cut off a couple and bring them to supper. Um, and, and Kathy was the only one who actually ended up with, with a rose. And some of her friends were like, now that's interesting because we're all here at supper, and she's the only one that got a rose. I think something's going on here, right? Well, this is Boaz. He, he starts going, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll tell you what, Ruth, come on over here and let me, let me give you some bread and, and um, let me give you some wine. And, uh, and he gives her gifts. In fact, he lets her have some of the roasted grain. She gets to eat next to the reapers, which was unheard of before. Like, this is, this is not what the gleaners get to do. Like, gleaners are just trying to live. He's giving her a place at the table, right? So he's giving her kindness. He's, he's giving her favor. Um, but he doesn't stop there. He says, um, actually let her glean among the sheaves. In other words, let her walk through the barley that's already been bundled up and let her just take from the stalks, right? And he said, if that's not good enough, he said, go ahead and take some bundles out and then like drop it in front of her. So, so Ruth's walking along and you see these servants, they're just like throwing grain down in front of her. She's like, this, is, this gleaning idea is great. Like this is so easy. I don't know why more people aren't doing this because there's just food everywhere, right? Um, Boaz is showing kindness and he's showing interest in her. And so she gleans, um, they get to the end of the day, and she works up um, what, what, she had, um, what she had harvested, and she has two weeks' worth of food, right? It's an ephah of barley, that's two weeks' worth of eating, right? That's a crazy good amount. Right? When you're gleaning, you're trying to get enough for that day. If you get enough to eat that day, you're happy. She gets two weeks' worth. She goes back to her mother-in-law, um, and this is another sweet little thing about Ruth and Naomi's relationship. Uh, she, she brings um, not only what she gleaned, but she brought the leftovers, and she gave them to her mother-in-law. Do you see that in, in verse uh, number 18? She brings the leftover, and she gave them to her mother-in-law. They have this sweet relationship, and, and, and Naomi is overwhelmed. In fact, um, in the original, she asks these questions like rapid fire. She says, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed is a man who took notice of you. You, you catch this, like, her words are just, like, tumbling out, like, what, where is this coming from? Where it's coming from is a God who is showing faithfulness and kindness uh, to these women, right? So she tells her mother-in-law, and she says, and it so happens that the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. You see that? There is, again, that idea of kindness that idea of loving loyalty, Naomi goes, God has shown kindness to the living and the dead today. She's recognizing God's hand is at work in this, right? So that's why I say Naomi is a confusing character because at points she seems like she's walking out on God, but now she's going, God is the one doing this. Like God is the one blessing us right now. And she tells, she tells Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers, we're going to talk about that more in just a little bit. Um, but Ruth says, well, he told me you should stay close by my young men until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi says, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women. And then listen to this, lest in another field you be assaulted. You want to know how bad the time of the judges was? That's how bad it was. It wasn't even safe for Ruth as a young woman to go to another field without her being attacked. God is actually protecting her by letting her go to Boaz's field. Because there are other Jewish men who would have taken full advantage of Ruth. 
And yet God is protecting her. He's providing for her. He's keeping her from being assaulted. He's, he's getting her into Boaz's field. And he's doing all this because the story's going somewhere, right? So I hope you haven't lost sight of that, right? The story is going somewhere. God is showing faithfulness. God is showing kindness. And he's showing us that, that faithfulness looks like provision and it looks like protection. And so verse number 23, Ruth keeps close to the young women, and she gleans until the end of the barley harvest and then the wheat harvest. So for about seven weeks, Ruth is working at Boaz's field, and she's living with her mother-in-law. And now we get to chapter number three. Chapter number three, we're going to come back to Ruth's faithfulness, and we're going to see that loyal love is selfless. So, so far we've said that loyal love is sacrificial, loyal love protects and provides. Now we're going to see that it's selfless, and we're going to see it um, with some cultural realities that we really have no concept for. Right? Because what happens in chapter 3 is going to sound weird to you. In fact, you, you probably already know what's going to happen in chapter 3. And you're going, this, is, this sounds really strange. What, what is really weird in chapter 3? Well, first of all, the whole concept of um, marrying your um, brother-in-law so that he could raise up children for you, that's already a weird concept. But what happens is that Naomi, her wheels have been spinning. And she goes, wait a second, Boaz's family, Boaz could marry Ruth. Boaz could be Ruth's husband, and they could have children together, and they could raise up children for my dead husband and my dead son, and they could continue the family name, which is hugely important in, in Jewish culture, right? We want the family name to continue. And, and Naomi goes, aha, Boaz could be that guy. So she comes up with this plan. She says, I want to seek rest for you, Ruth, that it would be well with you. She said, isn't Boaz our relative? So she said, I know he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So I want you to do is get dressed up. All right, go ahead and put some perfume on. Put on your cloak, and I want you to go down there to the threshing floor. But stay hidden, but pay attention to where he goes. And when he, when he, when he goes and he lies down, figure out which one is him, and go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, that's nuts. Like, that's crazy talk. There's no way I'm going to go curl up next to a guy in the middle of the night that, no, this is weird, right? No, and that's not what Ruth says. Verse number five, she, Ruth replies, all that you say, I will do, right? Um, because Ruth's loyal love is selfless. She's not thinking about herself, right? Um, what's, what's going on here? What's happening at the threshing floor? Um, there are some people that have said, man, it sounds like, man, this is not sounding like a super good situation. Like going in the middle of the night, is there some kind of like hanky-panky going on here? Um, what, what's going on at the threshing floor? Um, what does it mean to go and uncover his feet? Uh, so a lot of commentators disagree and go back and forth and go, man, I, you know, it, it, this doesn't look like the greatest situation. Maybe something wrong is happening here. Um, I have come to the conclusion that I really don't think it is. Right? And there, there are several reasons. Um, both, both Ruth and Boaz are going to act very honorably as they have throughout the book. They're going to continue to do that throughout the rest of the book. Um, but notice, notice how it plays out, and, and you'll see that this is not some kind of inappropriate situation. She goes down to the threshing floor. Boaz has eaten, and he's drunk. His heart is merry, and he goes to sleep. And so she comes softly, and she uncovered his feet and lay down. All right? um, she must have come in really softly to not wake him up, right? Um, my wife says that I can sleep really soundly, only uh, she's the one who gets all the blankets torn off of her, um, and she, her feet get uncovered. But uh, she manages to get in there, and, and, and she lays down, and he never wakes up. You see that? So it's not that something has happened between the two of them, because at midnight, in verse number 8, the man is startled, and he turns over. That doesn't just mean he rolled over. That word turned over is like he jumped, 
right? He, he's startled. What is going on? Because he recognizes, behold, a woman lay at his feet, exclamation point, right? There weren't exclamation points in the original, but it's the right place for that, right? But there's a woman at my feet, like, uh, uh, Boaz, it's, this, is, this is unusual, right? Um, this is not expected. Um, and he had no idea she was there, right? And we're looking at the situation, and we're going, this is, this is really odd, all right? What, what is going on here at the threshing floor? Um, what, what Ruth is doing uh, is, is she's doing the old uh, marriage proposal in reverse, right? Um, Ruth is coming to Boaz, and essentially she's going to say, you are my near relative, uh, and will you redeem us, right? Which includes marrying her. That's essentially what she's asking him to do. Because he says, who are you? She, he can't even see her, right? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, right? And that's that other cultural reality that we're just not used to, that idea of a kinsman redeemer. Now, the idea of a kinsman redeemer is somebody who was, who was family, who was responsible for other members of the extended family. And it was actually very common. Um, every family in, in those ancient days, not just Jewish, would have had a kinsman redeemer. It's the person who is responsible for the life and the welfare of the extended family. So he was responsible for things like justice, um, he would avenge. If anyone was killed, he would be the avenger of them. Uh, if, if a relative was forced to sell property, he would go and buy the property back so the family could still have it. Um, if a family member was sold into slavery, the kinsman redeemer was responsible to go and get that person out of slavery. Right? That's the idea of the redeemer, the, the buyer back. It was a family concept. Um, obviously, it's not something that we have today, although maybe in your family, there's that one person in your family who's kind of like the responsible one, right? And everyone knows they're the ones that are going to like make the family plans. And uh, this is much more um, intensive than that, but that's kind of the idea. This is the one recognized family member who's supposed to take care of the rest of the family. That's this kinsman redeemer. Again, another cultural concept that we don't have much category for. um, But this kinsman redeemer was responsible for things just like this for things just like marrying Ruth, so that she can have children, so the name of the family can continue. And Boaz answered, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Apparently, Boaz is not a young man anymore. He's been unmarried, but he's getting older, because he keeps talking about how young she is, and he's talking to his young men. Um, and, but he says, you, you are actually more faithful. You have shown more love in coming to me than you did in coming to this country, right? Because Ruth is showing loyal love because Ruth is now willing to marry a guy to raise up family for her dead husband and for the mother-in-law that she loves. This is an act of selfless love. And so he says, do not fear. I'm going to do all that you ask. Uh, It's true that I'm a redeemer, but there's some bad news. And you're on this roller coaster ride of like, this is a neat romance story and Boaz is going to do the right thing. You're like, this is working out great. And then Boaz goes, uh, but bad news. There's actually somebody who's a closer redeemer than I am. He says, remain tonight and in the morning. If he'll redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Right? Um, which that part doesn't sound overly romantic, right? Boaz is like, well, if he'll do it, then great. Uh, and if not, then, then I'll do it. Right? But, but, but what Boaz understands is that is that according to the law, he can't be the one that is first. This other guy is going to have to give up his right to marry Ruth. So now the roller coaster is on what's going to happen, right? What's, where are we going to go next? Uh, because remember, in Ruth chapter 3, Boaz doesn't know what's about to happen. 
Ruth doesn't know what's about to happen. Naomi doesn't know what's about to happen. But God is going to do something in real history to show his faithfulness. In fact, he's going to do something that's going to lead to the birth of Bethlehem's most famous son, David, who is just going to be a tiny little foretaste of the great one from Bethlehem, the one that we are looking forward to celebrating at this Christmas time. Boaz sends Ruth home with this huge gift This gift of barley, because he says you can't be empty-handed. And Naomi says, don't worry, he's going to deal with this today. And today brings us to chapter number four. This is the last last page, right? It's the last chapter. The book of Ruth is only four pages long in my Bible. uh, And you've been through three. So now you hang in there for chapter number four, because this is where the whole story has been moving. Because in chapter number four, we're going to see God's faithfulness on display because loyal love is going to bless graciously. Boaz goes to the gate, and he sits down there, and the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, right? The the nearer relative. And so Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here, right? I wonder, like, is Boaz's pulse, like, racing at this point? Is he going, like, well, here it goes. Like, we're going to find out what happens. He he gathers 10 of the elders, and they sit down, and he says, "Uh, look, Naomi's back, and she has a parcel of land, uh, and I thought I would tell you about it, and I would say, buy it in the presence of these elders, because um, if you're going to redeem it, redeem it. But if not, I want you to tell me uh, because I'm next in line and I'll buy it if you don't. And this guy says, this guy who is unnamed, this guy who was responsible, like it's this guy's responsibility to redeem this land and it's his job to marry Ruth. So it doesn't matter if you think the custom is weird or not. It's this guy's job. It's his responsibility. It's the right thing for him to do, right? Um, he's not even going to get a name in this story because he's going to completely flake out. Right? Because he says, I will redeem it. And Boaz says, great, but there's some fine print. Uh, if you go ahead and get this land, because who doesn't want more land? Right? The guy's like, sure, I'll go ahead and take the land. Uh, he says, but by the way, um, if you buy the land, you also get Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And this guy... This guy who should have been faithful to his family promises, this guy who should have done the right thing, he takes a huge step back. And he goes, no way, I'm out. No way, I'm marrying that woman. There's no, I'm not going to do it. He says, I cannot redeem it myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Saying, I want to have my own kids who will get my land. I don't want to raise up kids for somebody else because they get the inheritance. That's part of what is happening when you marry the 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 brother-in-law's wife, is you're actually raising an inheritance for their kids. And he's going, no, I want my kids to have it. And, and he's fearing his, his, own, um, his own family, his own family name, right? He's thinking about himself. It's the opposite of loyal love. This is him being selfish. And he says, you take my right of redemption because I cannot redeem it, right? And he says, I cannot. What he meant was, I will not. I refuse to be faithful, so yet again, another unusual custom. There's this, there's this deal where they take off their sandals. Um, one guy draws off his sandal and he gives it to the other. It says this was the manner of attesting in Israel. I, I have no idea why this was the custom. I wish I could explain it to you, but nobody else really knows either. Why do you take off a sandal and hand it to the other guy? I don't know, but that's the way it's done. So we sign pieces of paper. Um, they hand over pieces of sandals, right? So uh, he hands them his sandal and Boaz says, you're all witnesses, and he says, I've purchased this land, and also Ruth, the, the Moabite, I have bought to be my wife. That's super romantic too, huh? Nothing like going out and buying a wife. Uh, he says, I bought my wife uh, to perpetuate the name of the dead, and you are witnesses. And everyone said, we are witnesses, in verse number 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming in your house like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in, in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right, interesting because Tamar was also another one of those Leverite marriages where um, her husband died and she actually had children um, through Judah. Um, but the point is they're wishing a blessing on them and, and they're saying, may this woman be like Rachel and Leah. And, and they're saying, may, may your house um, be like the one that founded um, this town. May, may, may God bless you because of your offspring. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. All right? That's another reason to think that nothing um, happened um, at the threshing floor, because when the Bible wants to hint that something happened, it can hint um, perfectly fine. Everyone understands that he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Right? If he wanted to hint at something like that earlier, he would have. Um, but it's interesting, because how many years was Ruth married without having a child? She's married for 10 and doesn't have a child. And yet when she gets married to Boaz, what happens? The Lord did what? The Lord gave her conception. Uh, this is another concept that is, is lost a lot of times in our modern thinking, but God is the giver of life, right? Every child um, represented in every family in this room, God was the one who gave those children. God is sovereign um, in this. And just like he didn't give her children with Malon, he does give her children with Boaz. And she bears a son because God is being faithful to his promises and he's blessing graciously. He's blessing this pagan Moabite woman. And the women now say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. It's a sweet thing. You see that relationship? He's better, she's better than seven sons. She has given birth to the Redeemer. So the Redeemer in this verse is not Boaz, it's who? It's the baby. The baby whose name is Obed. Because this baby, Obed, means that now God is blessing Ruth. And he's blessing Naomi. And he's going to continue their family. And so Naomi takes that child and she became, becomes his nurse. And all of the women who had been buzzing about Naomi coming now say, a son has been born to who? Who's the son been born to? It's not been born to Ruth. It's been born to who? It's been born to Naomi. Because this child will continue Naomi's family line. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now Ruth ends this way. And you might think that Ruth is going out with a whimper, when in reality, this is what all of Ruth has been driving for. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered, fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amminadab, and Amminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, uh, and Salmon fathered Boaz. And at this point, if you haven't been yawning yet, now you're really yawning. Like, I, you can't even pronounce these names. What, what does it matter? Why is Ruth ending with a bunch of names? Because Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. You see, Ruth ends with an exclamation point and not a whimper. Because Ruth ends with David. Ruth ends with the one who will come to be Israel's king, who will reverse all of that temporary deliverance and, and all, of the, all of the temporary provision of a judge. He will now come to be their greatest king. And he will come in this amazing story of faithfulness and of love. 
David will come, and yet David is also just the reminder of the great one who will come from Bethlehem, who will faithfully, sovereignly, graciously redeem his people. God's sovereignty is seen in this book in the many answered prayer because Naomi desires her daughters-in-law to find rest and get a husband, and Ruth gets Boaz. And Boaz prays for Ruth in chapter 2 that she would be blessed, and she gets a husband and a child. And the elders wish a blessing on Boaz and Ruth's marriage, and it's fulfilled beyond anyone's wildest expectation because now Ruth is in the family line of David. And now Ruth's name is going to show up in Matthew chapter number 1 because when you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he's got this Moabite woman in it because God shows gracious favor to people. Ruth doesn't deserve it, and yet she's given this amazing faithfulness. So God will remain faithful to his people. He will remain faithful to his promises. He'll even bless those who are faithful to him outside of the nation of Israel. So, so what? We need to get to some application uh, from from this amazing book. Because I I hope you get to the end of this book um, knowing the setting, knowing these three human characters. I hope you've seen the point that God values loyal love. And I hope when you think about Ruth, you won't just think, oh, that's that, that cool romance story or, or that, that's that um, unusual book that um, actually is, is nice after that bad ter- period of the judges. What you need to think of when you think of Ruth is in the biblical context, this is along the way of God providing a redeemer for his people, a redeemer who would come through the family of David. I hope you'll see that God shows loyal love and so should we. And so, so, so what from this message? Number one, I want to encourage you that we should want God's loyal love. God to be faithful to us is something for us to desire. There's only one way for you to get it. God can be faithful to you only through the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only way God would possibly have a reason to be faithful to us because we've walked out on him and we've abandoned him and we're rebels against him. But the good news is because of Jesus, God wants a relationship with you. We should want God's loyal love. Secondly, you should rejoice in God's loyal love for you. You can be glad this morning that God will be faithful to you and faithful to all of his promises. Thirdly, you can expect God's loyal love. Maybe you're in one of those periods in your life right now where you are having a hard time seeing the goodness and kindness of God. What Ruth reminds you is God is relentlessly faithful. Even when you are unfaithful, God remains faithful. You can expect God to be faithful to you, to have loyal love for you. And he'll never turn away from that loyal love for you and the person of his son. My last application from this message is to encourage you to give others loyal love. Right? Give others loyal love. Faithfulness is something for us to value in families. It's something that husbands should show wives and wives should show to husbands. It's what we should give to our kids, even if our kids don't deserve loyal love. We should remain relentlessly committed to them. We should be the kind of people who are recognized as that's a follower of Christ because he's faithful to his word. He's faithful to the people he cares about. He loves those other church members, right? You can be faithful to one another. Faithfulness is a, a, a valued virtue from God. And I think it's one of the themes of the Old Testament that God is faithful. So we should imitate him. So show others loyal love.